And so I learned, while researching this book, that James K. Polk was a man of great contradictions. A president who used executive power prodigiously, but left office voluntarily. A protege of Andrew Jackson, who achieved more, but is less renowned than his mentor. And, in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. Before I sign your first editions of my book, James K. Polk, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes. So, how responsible was James K. Polk for the epidemic of cannibalism during his administration? Not one bit. That question is in very poor taste. So were the members of the Donner Party. Another baseless rumor. According to the survivors' accounts, Franklin Ward Graves was surprisingly tender. And not at all gamey. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, president number 11, James K. Polk. For those of you that are returning to DB Comedy presents The Electables, welcome back. For those of you that are new, this is a hybrid a mashup of sketch comedy about the presidents and discussions with people who know things about presidents. History, if you will. We hope you enjoy, we hope you do some digging, and we hope to keep hearing from more new friends. Enjoy. Today's guest historians, Dr. Chelsea Denote and James McRae. Good evening. Uh, my name is James McRae. Uh, I'm a 2011 graduate of Albion College, uh, where I majored in history. And uh, for the past seven years, I've had the pleasure of teaching uh, social studies at Saranac Junior Senior High School in Saranac, Michigan. Great. I, I did more prep on Polk. I, I, I briefly opened my Presidents of the United States book and, and skipped a little bit and did a double check of the Wikipedia page to make sure things checked out. And uh, <laughs> so I... Uh, Let's do it then. I have got some Polk stuff at least. Um, first of all, if we're talking about Polk, can I just say that uh, I love the fact that his nickname was the Napoleon of the Stump, apparently, <laughs> which referred to his oratory skills. That's new. I have not. I thought I was a Polkaholic, and you come out with that one. Damn. Okay, wait, wait, wait a minute. So was Napoleon known for being an orator? I, see, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I do not, I... I don't really grasp it for straws. Yeah. Because I certainly don't think of stumps as being particularly eloquent. Uh. Well, and I never thought about a stump speech as being a strategic endeavor. I've thought of it as being more of like an artistic, like, like the Michelangelo of the stump makes more sense to me than the Napoleon of the stump. But This means he killed it. I was going to say, maybe he murdered them. Yeah. It's also <laughs> worth saying that Napoleon conquered a lot of territory and so did Polk. What, what you, so, like, when I first read this, I thought, like, when they said the stump, maybe they're talking about, like, like the stump of a tree, like he came from the back <laughs> That was my first was, thought. But also was, like, a brilliant military leader. So then I was like, wait, na- what does this mean? And they're like, no, this refers to his oratory. <laughs> well, also because Napoleon was, was kind of short, wasn't he? You get yes. the whole, right? And you get Pope the whole Napoleon, Napoleonic complex. So was Pope also short? From what I understand, Polk was teeny tiny. 
Oh, yeah. what, was he was he James Madison tiny though? That's my no. question. <laughs> no one is James Madison tiny. James Madison is pocket sized. Back to my back to our boy James K. Polk. Yes. Um, our twenty first prince. I don't was the continental except for maybe the Gazden Purchase. He completed the continental United States. Part partially through war with you know by having Zachary Taylor pretend that uh, gin up a incident on the Mexican border so we could invade, and part through negotiation with Britain. He was they, this is when they, they solved the, the, the 49-40 or fight dilemma? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was like 54-40 or fight, but he didn't get greedy. He only took 49. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's wait right. a minute. That one, that finally ring, that rings a bell. 54 right? point fight. That was, yeah. I, some, one of my classes made me remember that, but now I don't know why. Please refresh my memory. 54 point Basically, the United States wanted half of British Columbia, and they didn't get it. We could have had That's basically the Oregon Territory, and they yeah. settled for 49, which yeah. is. Oh, so we could have had Vancouver. That would have been cool. Oh, wow. Rainy, but rainy and cold. <laughs> so is Oregon. <laughs> yeah, but we got Portland out of that, so, you know. <laughs> and Seattle and grunge. Right. All right. Polk, so, we, so that was negotiated, so we didn't have to, we did not go to war over that? Right. Okay. Exactly. Despite the fact that the uh, slogan for it was very violent. 54-40 or fight. Okay, we'll take 40 <laughs> As slogans go, though, it's one of the better ones. It rolls off the tongue. It's rhythmic. It's punchy. I mean, Although I do have to, I do have to point out that the forty of the fifty-four forty-year fight refers to latitudinal minutes, which I want. Yeah. I, I really want somebody who scree was screaming that slogan to explain to me what <laughs> latitudinal minutes are. It could be someone who helped negotiate the Missouri Compromise, which I believe <laughs> no slavery under 3630. So, yeah, those longitudinal latitudinal minutes were crucial in early American history. Yeah, but, but the Missouri Compromise ended up becoming, you know, something cooler, Mason-Dixon line. But 5440, well, again, that's pretty nerdy. <laughs> You have some surveyors on your team. <laughs> and was the Missouri Compromise the primary issue between them? Texas was the primary issue, I would say. Like, who wanted it, who didn't? So, can I, one more thing. One of my other favorite parts about the uh, election, uh, speaking of good slogans and nicknames, so while 5440 or fight was kind of during Polk's presidency, my absolute but the only other thing I really like have known and have continued to know about Polk is that the Whigs once, uh, so it was, I, yes, we have to talk about the Whigs again. <laughs> so when the Whigs found out that uh, Polk was the Democratic nominee, their uh, slogan that they came out with was, who is James K. Polk? <laughs> and that's that why the Whigs, that's why you don't see any Whigs anymore. Yeah, when when he was announced as the candidate, that was their comeback. Like, who's that guy? I'm beginning and, to understand why they might be giants or so enamored of Polk. Like, so many nicknames and slogans and sayings surrounding them. I believe 
the Whigs really didn't improve on that one when they tried to promote Clay and his running mate with The Nation's Rising with Clay and Bellingheisen. You try to find a rhyme with Bellingheisen. <laughs> it would be surprising. Well done. <laughs> And again, as a kid growing up, growing up, learning American history at the time I did in the seven, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, the term that always comes up when you talk about ex American expansionism, although I still don't think it's coined yet, is Manifest, Manifest Destiny. Destiny. So if he, if, if, if Polk doesn't write the term, he's certainly laying it out because that again that concept of a power going from ocean to ocean again it this is this is one of the big like one of the central tenets of what makes america america or at least as i was taught and especially in the 19th century i mean once you once you get into the 20th century and you start looking at theodore roosevelt and the great the great white fleet Sorry, that really takes me some time to enunciate <laughs> instead of great white fleet, um, which is much more about taking manifest destiny beyond the borders of the United States. But the 19th century, I mean, that's kind of the nationalist obsession. And, and in some ways, even the resolution of slavery, quote unquote, is done in part because, well, we have to get that settled because we can't achieve what we want to without it being settled so we settle it and therefore now we can sort of begin to achieve our greatness so polk again he gives us the land he gives us the property he gives us the cookbook if you will and then but we can't quite you know i mean he he's he well he sets the table if i can just beat that metaphor into the ground even further um <laughs> Yes, James, agree. I mean, so without Polk, that doesn't happen. That can't happen. So one thing I, I'll just, so talking about the actual term manifest destiny, I, I decided, it says that newspaper editor John O'Sullivan is generally credited with coining the term manifest destiny in 1845. Um, right in the middle of the Polk administration. Right in the middle of the Polk administration. I thought it was earlier than that. I thought it was 1840. And I thought it was later. Oh, well, now we know. Now I'm going to. I never, I never, in my, again, in my mind, I don't associate it. The, the you... term was used by Democrats in the 1840s to justify the Mexican-American War, oh. and also used to negotiate the Oregon boundary dispute. So I, I, I think that. It, Manifest Destiny and James K. Polk in many ways are inseparable. Um, and nice. I think that um, Polk really has to be seen as the first interventionist president in terms really? of saying, you know what, the if you look at any of the conflicts that the United States had got, gotten in beforehand, generally speaking, they were things where, uh, you know, they weren't, um, even the War of 1812, which was, in many ways, a war of choice, but it had to do with things that were had to do with things that the United States was already doing. Sort of right? expensive, right? Um, even the little Barbary pirate expedition that they did um, in like eighteen oh three, I think. Um, yeah, 
had to do with protecting American commerce that was already happening, not American commerce that might happen in the future. Um, and so I think Polk is really the first president who says, you know what, we're going to go and we're going to expand the United States because we want to expand the United States and fights a war, at, you know, really to extend, you know, for the purposes of extending American influence and power, which I think sets a very important precedent that I think in many ways would be reflected uh, in Theodore Roosevelt's and William McKinley's justification for the Spanish-American War. Um, although, you know, and I, it's interesting because I say Theodore Roosevelt, who, you know, was not the president during the Spanish-American War, but really I think was part of the faction of people who were pushing it, whereas William McKinley, a veteran of the Civil War, was much more like, guys, war is not good. We shouldn't just do this for fun. Um, but ultimately couldn't stop his own, you know, people from pushing him over the edge to fight this, ultimately, what was the second of America's wars of con conquest, which, of course, takes out the war of conquest that was ongoing from the, you know, 1400s until the <laughs> end of the 19th century against Indian nations. But I guess in, that was always different in the mindset of Americans at the time, because they don't really didn't think of Indians as people. So as a legitimate as sovereign nation. Yeah. As a, his, as a member of the democracy burlesque family, Ooh. you say that that was, you know, you, and you're absolutely right about, you know, James K. Polk being manifest destiny made Napoleonic flesh, uh, which was, you know, gently seasoned with, you know, whatever they had on hand. But, would you not say that our first imperialist president was maybe Thomas Jefferson when he made the Louisiana Purchase? And speaking of the War of 1812, one of Madison's ambitions, it was not the central reason for the war, of course, was, hey, now we can conquer Canada. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I think that Americans' ambitions to annex Canada go back to the Revolutionary War when, you know, we sieged Quebec for like 100 days or something like that. And then everyone just decided it was too cold and went home. <laughs> You'll see that again. In well, thank God we don't have hockey as America's national sport, God damn it. So, you know, I think that, that you're right that Manifest Destiny, uh, as at least an idea in American society, goes back really to the people came here to settle. To the founding. I mean, it is essential to States. the American character. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, at, at least for European Americans, they came here, you know, the people who came here from England and then later came here from Germany and all those places, they came here to settle land. And so that was very much what they wanted to do. And if there was more land over them, our hills, they wanted to get to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that goes back to chafing against the, the Proclamation Act of 1763. Um, it goes to the invasion of Canada in the you know, very in the wars against Britain. So, you know, I, I see what you're like saying. I think that war in like 1636. But, yeah. but this is also where maybe the term manifest destiny gets attached to the West. Again, the mythic West, the cowboys and, and prairies. And, and, yeah, and as James said, this is, this is the act of militarization of America's imperial the specific militarization of America's imperial destiny. And that's where I agree on, I fall more on James's side than yours, Paul. So sorry, but also <laughs> not, right? That, oh, you historians like to hang out with each other. 
you know, we make each you other guys have a history. the right amount of nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I do. I, I don't know that I would point to Jefferson as the first imperialist president. I, I think that might fall to Polk more than Jefferson in that it was a deliberate incursion to gain property rather than a negotiation. I got to say, that must not have been easy for you to admit, Chelsea, because Jefferson's not your favorite. I'm not a big Jefferson fan. No, not a big fan. So now James K. Polk's quest for territory, his seemingly insatiable quest for territory, was it ideological or was he sublimating some socially unacceptable appetites into his politics? Whatever do you mean? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe he had some sort of eating disorder. Hey, we do not body shame here in this We don't, we don't, but you know. You know, his appetite for conquest was enormous. It consumed him. Insatiable. (laughs) If one would say. Would he run away in horror if we started talking about cannibalism? So, yeah, we were just going to make sure that he wouldn't be offended by our pet conspiracy theory. No, not at all. Just so you know, James, I took the took a few liberties with the fact that uh, James K. Polk was president during the most notorious outbreak of cannibalism in U.S. history, the Donner Party. (laughs) So I turned uh, James K. Polk into a deathbed cannibal since he consumed so much of the American continent. I just extended that to human flesh. It's a metaphor. That makes sense. brave, James, my love. Dr. Hippocrates will be here soon. Oh, my dearest Sarah. I fear I, I shan't make it. I think I'm... I think I'm... James? Oh, James! Yeah, nom, 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 ah, James! Nom, nom, James, nom, please! Nom, I'm your wife. You can't eat me. Stop chewing my fingers! But you gave me your hand in marriage. <laughs> Beg pardon for the delay, Mrs. Polk. But there was an overturned carriage on the road here, and I had to stop and amputate a few limbs. What seems to be ailing the president? Oh, Dr. Hippocrates, you must help the president. He eats and he eats, but is still so delirious from hunger that he makes dreadful puns. My Secretary of State, Mr. Buchanan, has been fodder for my jokes. Get it? Buchanan fodder? <laughs> and... He's becoming rather indiscreet about what he consumes. Why, yesterday at a state dinner for Frederick William III, he devoured an entire roast pig, three plum pies, four trade agreements, and the Prussian ambassador. Who doesn't like pork with a little kraut? (laughs) Let me see what I can learn from listening to Mr. Polk's heart. Do be careful, doctor. Never fear, Mrs. Polk. I'm an experienced doctor. I'm sorry. I'm in such a terrible temper. I didn't mean to bite your head off. (laughs) Oh, 
my goodness. Did he hurt you? Oh, no. I'm sure the scar will be most becoming once it's healed. What have you learned from listening to Mr. Polk's heart, Doctor? It beats more rapidly when he's excited. Really? Dr. Hippocrates. One of my stable boys could have told me that. My dear Mrs. Polk, your sarcasm is entirely unwarranted. Assessing your husband's heart was merely a pretext for evaluating his ill humor. His wit has become rather dull. Why is that? He suffers from an ailment common to American presidents, Anexia Imperialistica. After acquiring too much territory, a chief magistrate starts consuming anything in sight, then making awful jests. After the Louisiana Purchase, my father treated Thomas Jefferson, who swallowed two of his slaves and jested how he had Napoleon for dessert. I myself examined your husband's patron, President Andrew Jackson, after he cheated the Indians out of what we now call Western Kentucky. Oh, did you see old Hickory's dickery, Doc? (laughs) I can tolerate his insatiable appetite, but I can't abide his dreadful jokes. Will he ever recover? I'm afraid the prognosis is not good. Your husband has doubled the size of the United States and now displays a mania to expand by any means necessary. The only cure is a failure-plagued second term spent making unsuccessful compromises on the slavery issue. But, but my James has refused to serve a second term. I'd run against Clay, but I already flipped that wig. <laughs> Then I'm afraid, Mrs. Polk, you've no choice but to engage the services of a strong-armed, hard-of-hearing seamstress, and so the president's lips shut. Oh, my God, but Dr. Hypocrisies, what an inhumane death. Oh, it's a good thing I already got all the land south of the 49th parallel. Otherwise, I'd be suffering from Oregon failure. <laughs> Then again, I suppose there are worse fates. I'll post a notice in the Washington Reporter. Uh, I'm going to bust a gut. Someone call it Taylor. Yes, and, and it's it's interesting. I, I just wanted to kind of bring up a point that Sandy made. I think from a historical perspective, I think, and a point that James made, I think from a historical perspective, James K. Polk is a really important president in that by making these additions to the nation, he is setting the nation on a path, on an expedited path to civil war. Speaking of paths, now, the Donner Party got trapped outside of California, in California, just outside of the Sierra Nevada mountains during the Polk administration. And as, you know, even school children know, um, because they got sent on the wrong path and they were trapped, they started eating their own dead. Did Polk set the atmosphere that made cannibalism a more acceptable solution for, you know, desperate people. I, I would merely say that if Polk was 
worried about cannibalism, then he wouldn't have added California to the United States. Well reasoned, James. Good job. Because because California produces the tastiest people or it produces the tastiest vegetables and fruits. Uh, well, it's where the Donner Party occurred. I mean, that's where they're trying to get to. If Polk hadn't, you know, done that, then they probably wouldn't have gone there. Uh, and what happened probably wouldn't have happened. And, you know, Polk was a guy, he set his agenda, and then he carried things out. So clearly, I think that we can see the Donner Party is as something that he had planned. And, and by adding California to the United States, he set the events in motion that ensured that it occurred. Was it a conscious decision, though? Was he thinking, I mean, was it, you know, a direct objective or was it an indirect objective that, you know, if I send people out west and they and I allow the publication of paths of, you know, of routes that, you know, will tend people in the wrong direction and so they'll be trapped. Was he actively encouraging cannibalism or was he able to accept cannibalism as a cost of building a nation? I, you know, that's an interesting question, but, you know, I would say, remember, he is the Napoleon of the stump that <laughs> does not. <laughs> he laid this trap. Yeah. It was that Young Hickory. I guess that's Napoleon for Young Hickory. Are you saying this is the recipe for disaster that Polk laid out? Yeah, they, sh- they really should have come up with another uh, nickname about him being a chef of disaster. <laughs> Unfortunately. First iron, American Iron Chef, as it were. <laughs> Old Iron Chef. Oh, Hickory oh, Chef. <laughs> Hickory smoked pioneers. Oh. Uh, that, that was what? only when he's barbecuing. Mm. Donner, party of one, waiting to be seated. Oh, George Donner, stop that foolishness and wash up before supper. We're feasting on Bessie's rump tonight. Oh, poor Bessie. I raised that girl since she was a calf. This is going to be like devouring one of my own children. Mm, More satisfying, I'd wager. Those three girls of ours are nothing but skin and bone. Well, dadgum, Tamsin. I can think of a way to put a little more meat on them. We'll take them out west. To California. California? Why, that's the edge of the world and all Western civilization. Hey, look here in the Sangamon Journal, Tamsin. Mr. Polk can't decide whether to go to war with Great Britain so we can claim Oregon, or with Mexico so we can claim California. My guess is that he'll do both, and America will own the Golden Coast. Oh, goodness. First he annexes Texas, now he wants to swallow the rest of the continent? It's like Mr. Polk has an insatiable appetite for new territory. Oh, I'm starting to feel a certain California love, my love. George, don't even think of selling our farm and leaving Springfield. I don't care if you're starved for adventure. But it's as if Secretary of State Buchanan is practically begging men to go west. Even village people like us. Enough California dreaming on such a dreary day. We can't have the girls fantasizing about the wild, wild west. 
Ah, look at the little darlings out playing in the fields. Those Midwest farmers' daughters all could be California girls. Well, if we make it that far. George Donner, do you know how many provisions we'll have to take with us on a wagon train? Oh, I'm sure we'll bring enough. Don't you worry about my ability to provide for my family, Tamsin. You know I'd cut off my leg if that's what it takes to keep my family from going hungry. But if we stay in Springfield, it won't come to that. Besides, I like the fact that all our friends are nearby. Why, we can have the neighbors for dinner any time we want. Eh, maybe that'll be easier in California than you think. Is the grass really greener there, George? Oh, everything is greener, Tamsin. Don't you read the stories in the journal? California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or to see. There's... Lush fields, flowing rivers, giant trees, mighty mountains. We'll be safe from the capricious winds of Mother Nature. They say it never rains in Southern California. Probably doesn't snow either. Much as I do hate the freezing cold winters here in the Midwest, George, I will not become Mexican just to escape them. Ay, caramba. California won't be part of Mexico for long. Mr. Polk won't allow it. It's just like Texas. The more white folks settle there, the more likely it is to become a U.S. state. Americans will eat that territory right up. By the time we arrive, the whole place will be welcoming us to the Hotel California. Well, but until it does join the Union, it'll be part of Mexico, and even white folks will be forced to attend a Catholic church. Now, why would that be so bad? Catholics are Christians, just like us. George, they feed each other little pieces of bread and say, This is my body. Take of it and eat. Don't you find that just a tiny bit strange? Oh, different people have different tastes. But I'll tell you what I don't have a taste for, Tamsin, and that's stagnation. If we stay in Springfield, we'll be stuck, immobile, frozen, as trapped as if we were buried alive. The trip will be so difficult, George. The trip is the least of our worries, Tamsin. All I have to do is place an ad in the journal to attract a few beefy men who aren't chicken. We can sell the farm, set out on the Oregon Trail by next spring, and unless we collide with other crews, by Christmas we'll be out there, having fun in the warm California sun, laying under the palm trees on a bed of California stars. It's like Mr. Polk is begging us to settle the West. Ignoring him would be a catastrophe. I won't be able to talk you out of this, will I? You know how I am when I sink my teeth into something. If I grab onto an idea, you'll only pry it from my cold, dead hands. If you want, Tamsin, I'll go ahead on my own and send for you and the girls after I found that happy valley full of gold or platinum or silicon or whatever. I'll be going to California with an aching in my heart, but I'll do it. Oh, no, you won't. It's like the preacher said on our wedding day back in 1839, George Donner, my place is by your side, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. I love you, Tamsin Donner, and there won't be any worse or poorer out in California. In fact, I feel our destiny calling history. Shall long remember the Donner Party. 
Now let's call the girls in and tell them the good news. <laughs> Francis, Georgia, and Eliza Donner. Can't have you starve and gather for the feast. Greetings, loved ones. Let's take a journey. California, here we come. Um, I think, Joe, you asked about Polk's domestic agenda. Mm-hmm. And the only things that I really know are that he created the Department of the Interior, like, as almost his, like, final act of presidency. And he... You said something about finances. He did Killing it. the bank. He didn't kill the bank. He made it so that, what? So that, James, help me here. So that he made it so that federal funds couldn't be held in local banks, that they could only be held in like treasury buildings to kind of like undercut oh, wow. local banks. Did I make Interesting. that Interesting. So again, my I majored in history in college, but after uh, that, I, I kind of became a, a second life economist. And so, some of, I come come at some of the stuff with an economist perspective. And the financial history of the nineteenth century America is like the road of oh my god, you're doing exactly the wrong thing over and over and over again. And it makes me tear my hair out sometimes because it's like. Yeah, central banks are good, and you had one that was pretty okay, and then okay. Andrew Jackson just decided that he had a personal vendetta against it. So, and yeah, I also, um, tariffs, of course, tariffs were a big political issue throughout this period. Uh, Polk kind of seems like a moderate on tariffs. He, one of the things that we forget about tariffs is that there was, main, there was the main way that the federal government raised revenue. Uh, no until income tax they, Right, created the income tax in the early 20th century. So um, there was both this balance of, well, we need the tariff because we need to, you know, have the federal government, but also the tariff is to support American manufacturers by pricing out foreign competition, which of course um, the Southerners were very much not in favor of because they wanted to import some of those cheaper uh, manufacturers so that they could, because they didn't build those things themselves. I think Polk was very much trying to, you know, balance those sectional issues politically, basically said, well, we need the tariff to raise money, but uh, that's really what the tariff is there for. Um, but anyway. Who is James now, Polk's vice president? That's a good question. Probably another dark horse no name. Let's look at We're not up. quite at the era where those are all like machine, like urban machine hacks from important states. George M. Dallas. From where? So I I, I feel like we'd be remiss about noting that even though he didn't run for a second term, Pope did die shortly after leaving office of cholera, only about three months after he left office. So. And yeah, it was in June of 49. And one of the symptoms of cholera is a hunger for human flesh. And some. (laughs) I've got to say, no, I I don't think you'll find that on the WebMD. I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe on the 19th century WebMD when they had a little more familiarity with the symptoms. But anyway, Joe, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think regional balance was a big factor in choosing a running mate back in the 19th century. I mean, this Dallas guy, ironically enough, was from Pennsylvania. 
Yeah. So you had to have one slave owner and one northerner. On oh, most I'm not saying that there wasn't balance, but we we're not quite again. Once we as we peeking ahead to sort of post Civil War presidents, that's certainly an era where you had political machines dominating parties to the point where many of those apparatchiks could maneuver their way into the highest offices. Um, I don't think we're quite at that point pre-Civil War. We're getting close, but yeah, we're not quite there. Yeah. But what's more important is sort of the, well, I mean, we're, a, lot of the, a lot of the tickets that seem to, be, that seem to ascend to power had that theoretical slave, no you know, balance of slave state, not slave state, somehow thinking that that balance would keep the Civil War from happening. Huh. And Polk was from Tennessee, a slave state, and also a place, correct me if I'm wrong, where they make burgoo, <laughs> that strange mid-American, you know, upper south oh. stew. Yeah, yeah. Which I believe is sometimes made with squirrel, but... <laughs> you would have to ask Andrew Jackson about that. <laughs> it all depends on what was what was in, what, close to where you lived, and and there might Whatever have been some, kill you had? or maybe you know grandma she just kicked off so it is possible that james k pole consumed human flesh but it has not been proven so we really should not try to spread the you know spread the canard that james k pole was a cannibal maybe an accidental cannibal but that's true of any of us except for sandy and me we're vegetarians <laughs> you can have hair <laughs> hair h-a-r-e or h-a-i-r well if we're talking human um Good evening, Mr. President. Mr. Polk. Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Oh, uh, please, just call me Lily May. And call me Josephat. Then you should call me James. Oh, we couldn't possibly. No, you're our president. I am no greater a man just because I'm president. But still meeting humble citizens like us. I feel I should try to meet as many people as I can. I do so at least twice a week. That sounds just like President Andrew Jackson. We were here for his inauguration. Oh, quite a day. Uh, I see you cleaned up the place. Thank you again. How can the government help you? Well, the real question is, how can we help you keep running the government? My husband has discussed your decision to now run for re-election with our neighbors in our hamlet in Indiana. We are very happy with the work you have done. Well, thank you. When I came into office, I wanted to bring statehood to California, resolve a dispute with Britain over the Oregon Territory, lower tariffs, and improve the credit of our country. It appears you are well on your way to fulfilling all four goals. Indeed we are. Which is why we in Noblesville, Indiana, have stoutly and enthusiastically wished to endorse you to return to the White House just as soon as you reverse your decision to not run again. <laughs> I am indeed flattered and humbled by such support, but I believe leaders who stay in office too long often do more harm than good. He has a point. Think of how long old man Martin has been mayor of Noblesville. He can hardly be counted on to be even in his office. And when he is, he usually smells of whiskey. Being mayor of a podunk Indiana backwater town is different from being president. No comparison at all. Besides, old man Martin hasn't been seen with a bottle in his hand for a good two or three months. 
I cannot speak to the political situation in your town. Is that why you voted for him again? Oh, you don't know who I voted for. I know when you went out to vote, you came home stinking of whiskey. A week later, old man Martin's taking the oath for another four years of being mayor. I put two and two together. And that might be why your sex doesn't have the votes. Wait, in any event. <laughs> Women wouldn't vote for men who were obvious drunks. And you would have voted for that young man Gaylord instead? I don't know. I would need to know much more about him before I would vote for someone new. But I wouldn't vote after drinking alcohol. You know, it sounds like your local political situation is quite interesting. Oh, never a dull moment, but back to your decision. I suspect we will find another excellent president among those I hear may be running soon. If you support them like you support me, the country will be in fine shape in the future. You are indeed a man of principle, which is why you are such an effective president. Again, humbled, but I just have to say. Uh, Lily May, I think it's time we use our secret weapon. I beg your pardon? All right. Mr. President, as an enticement to make you change your mind, I have to ask my dearest wife to prepare a pot of her world-famous Noblesville Gold Medal Indiana Sycamore Forest Burgoo and ask that in accepting this most delectable affair, you reconsider your decision not to run for re-election. I... Burgoo. We understand Burgoo is one of the dishes of your fine state. It is. Well, you are certainly in for what may very well be the most delightful and soul-filling version of the dish you have ever eaten. What sort of thing do you put in Kentucky burgoo? Well, it's a favorite in the fall when deer become plentiful and the harvest brings squash. Uh, We don't have that fancy stuff in Noblesville. Especially since we're just finishing a long winter. (laughs) I must admit, I am trying to identify the aroma. For your pot. Well, don't leave Mm. the man hungry, Lily. Make feed him a spoonful. Does the man look like a baby, you fool? Well, then open up. I thank you for your. Stop thrusting the ladle in the president's Mm. mouth. Oh, how rude. Give it a little chew, Mr. Burgoo. That'll open up your throat. That's how you can get all the flavor out of the woodland. What's in this Burgoo, Lily May? Excuse me. You didn't put too many hot peppers in it, did you? I told you, squirrel ain't in season yet, so I may do with this harebrained sheem of yours and did the best I could. With two polecats. Even threw in their glands. So, yes. That's why you win them awards. I love polecat glands. I... I apologize for needing to run out. Uh, No worries. Sometimes it takes some time to get the taste of Indiana Burgoo. I want to thank you for your dish, and thank you for your support, but I should allow others to occupy this hallowed office and accept the greatest job this country has, citizen. Well, shit. Joseph Fett, watch your language. My dear friend. If uh, you are doing the work you want to do and the people of this country want you to keep doing it, why the hell should you stop yourself from doing it? When I am done with this term, my political career... My... Political career, if if you'll excuse me, once again. I suppose he won't have the rest of this. Uh, We'll have it for supper. Uh, Let's go back to our lodging. I am proud of you. You spoke to the president very well. Well, well, thank you, but uh, why did you have to talk about old man Martin's drinking? It's the only thing about old man Martin that's worth talking about. Just like a man, you can't keep good burgoo down.
so was Polk also, was Polk a military man? Refresh my memory. I don't think so. He might have fought in the War of eighteen twelve, but that doesn't sound right. Mm-mm. Doesn't sound like him. I know he was a big uh, follower and protege and uh, disciple of Andrew Jackson. If that young Hickory, they called him. Young Hickory. So one of the things we're discovering is Polk was a magnet for nicknames. (laughs) For some odd reason, as if James K. Polk was not good enough for some reason. See, now here's my favorite thing about Polk when I researched him was that he had very specific things he wanted to do as president. He did them in one term, and at least from what, at least according to uh, the research I did, he then decided, there, done, out. And everybody was like, no, you're a successful president, you should run again. He's like, nope, I'm good, I'm, I'm finishing on top. (laughs) <laughs> he was also a very sick man. Like, not mentally. Well, maybe mentally. He was a, uh, quote, cannibal, close quote, after all. But he died many, very shortly after he left office. Took on, like, ran for election, were elected, didn't take office under, you know, didn't assume the presidency from the vice presidency, but were elected, served exactly one term, Ooh. and then declined to run for re-election. Let's look. One-term presidents. Well, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is John Lyndon Johnson, but under very different circumstances. Right. Well, he, right, well, he he was he was reelected in '64 after ascending the presidency after Kennedy's death. Um, I'm talking about people who were they came into office because they were they ran and were elected, and then they decided voluntarily. Not to run the election. Right. right, right, voluntarily. There's plenty of right. one-term presidents, but not right. by their choice. There are 12 of them. 12 one-term presidents? Here are them all. Voluntary? Yes. Uh, John Adams. Well, okay, yeah. But he ran again. He ran. He lost. lost. Okay, so we're including, okay. Okay. Only people who chose not to run. Let's go down and we'll kind of evaluate them. Okay, so let's see. Uh, Not John Adams then, not George H.W. Bush, James K. Polk. Yep. Uh, not John Quincy Adams, not Taft, not Carter. Buchanan? Hmm? Buchanan, well, Hayes? it would have been a disaster if he'd run, but the Fillmore. Democrats Chosen. nominated Fremont in 1860. Fillmore? Right. <laughs> he won. Well, <laughs> he ran again. He ran again. Well, he in a different party, but he ran. Who? As in, oh, well, Carter he, got, no, Carter got thrashed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know Hoover. I don't know if Hoover ran again. Hoover ran again. Did he? Oh yeah. Because the Republicans were like, if what we don't he? nominate him, that looks like we're blaming him. So we'll nominate him. Oops. Didn't go real well. <laughs> <laughs> and even Taft, he ran and lost, but his heart really was never in it. Heart, oh, yeah. Taft was always about, I want to be a Supreme Court justice, and he yep. did, and he was wonderful, and he was actually really good at it. Like, so I would think that then that that. Buchanan? Lyndon Johnson and Buchanan maybe the only two that chose not to run. Yeah. Franklin Pierce? Uh, Pierce did not stand a chance of getting nominated in 1856. I, I don't think he ran particularly hard 
for the nomination. He was another one who had an absolutely miserable personal life. Chester A. Arthur? Uh, the only other two that I have on my list here that I am unsure about are Van Buren, who I think did run again, but lost. Oh, yeah. And he lost. Then he got lost. Uh, and Benjamin Harrison. Benjamin did run again in 1892. Thank uh, you. And he lost, lost to, to Grover Cleveland. Right. Yes. Hey, James, how many yeah. presidents was – are you a Cleveland truther? How many presidents was uh, Grover Cleveland? How many times do you count Grover Cleveland as president once or twice? I, I think Grover Cleveland was just one president. Just. <laughs> but how many times do we count in, in the list of 45 presidents? Just Ooh. once. I, I really? Yeah. So we're Ooh, under- we have a truther. We have a. That's right. Now it's an official debate. It's an official controversy. <laughs> is he officially counted twice? He's officially yes, counted twenty-two and twenty-four. Yes, he is right. Oh my That's- gosh! How badly did he probably beg for a leather jacket that had both twenty-two and twenty-four? <laughs> that? A little Velcro, so he could always just shift it and move it from as the mood struck. I really, really hope that he asked for that. So if Polk had been elected to a second term, he might have Children? survived. Well, no, he might not have contracted cholera because if it was a local regional thing, he wouldn't have gone back to his home state. And if he had stayed in Washington, where, as we all know, that swamp water is pristine, he so- might have been saved. That's we possible. Do like, we do like some good counterfactuals, I think, in this podcast. <laughs> Um, I would agree basically with Chelsea's point that um, if you're looking for somebody who, you know, wrote down a to-do list in terms of grand national ambitions and then started <laughs> checking the boxes, Polk is, uh, Polk is definitely up there. Um, I think that you, you have the, the two kind of mammoth figures in American history of Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln in terms of presidents. And then you have a whole bunch of people in the middle that nobody has ever heard of um outside of people in this room um and <laughs> this virtual room and, this, podcast and listening to this podcast is right. <laughs> of those people james k polk was the most in most important from the perspective of american history of those between jackson and lincoln presidents um because the monumental change in the character of the united states that was brought about by the addition of the Mexican Cession and then later the Gadsden Purchase, which again, imagine the United States without Texas, without California, without the Grand Canyon, without Arizona. It would just, it would be a much different state, even from just a, a perspective of physical geography. Mm-hmm. All those lessons that my wife teaches on desert biomes would go out the window. Um, <laughs> we don't have that. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have that here in the United States. It's just a bunch of deciduous forest. Um, <laughs> Very exciting, though. So many leaves. Um, I think that ultimately, for if you're looking at the United States from a frame of we want this nation to be economically powerful and we want it to be influential in the world, then that was an important step. Texas and California and the natural resources that lie in between those areas are certainly um, have been important for the United States in terms of its ability to. Uh, you know, exercise power globally. From a global, from a like kind of, you know, world arcing towards a a moral future perspective, I would say that that was not so good. 
that the Mexican-American War was basically uh, invented by Polk. He wanted to take this land. He found an excuse to do it. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln tried to stop him with the spot resolution, um, which is an interesting little bit of history that Abraham Lincoln, a nobody congressman that nobody's ever heard of, gets up in Congress and is like, wait, so you say American soldiers were killed on American soil, but where exactly did that occur? Um, and of course, then he later becomes the greatest, you know, president in American history. And, you know, I guess that's telling you my perspective on that. But like, I think it's interesting that these people just kind of pop up beforehand as like little cameos. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the, the Mexican-American War is Polk's legacy. And I think that from a modern moral standpoint, you have to say that that was not a just war, um, that that was a, a war primarily of conquest of a stronger nation against a weaker nation. Um, and, well, and a, that a colonial power war in the, right. in the truest sense. Yeah. Very first. And ultimately, I think that we're still paying some of the consequences of that because I think that war permanently destabilized Mexico in some ways. Um, and that the inability of our southern neighbor to be a you know stable country continues to you know result in a situation on the border which is unstable um and you know for those of people who in this country are concerned about immigration or illegal immigration i've always felt that the solution to illegal immigration does not lie in the united states it lies in mexico and central america becoming countries that people want to live in and James K. Polk is responsible for Mexico being a country that people do not want to live in, in some ways. So, okay, so cholera, yeah, I mean, speaking of, speaking of, again, episodes that were, previous episodes that we were doing, and of cholera as sort of an epidemic, was, was cholera considered an, an epidemic, or would it have been called an epidemic, or was it just one of those things people always caught in that era, because... Cholera tends to have very regionalized outbreaks because you get it from drinking poisoned water or infected water. And so if your water source is cholera, you're going to get cholera. But since water sources tend to be local in nature, it doesn't, it doesn't spread human to human. Was Polka particularly, um, was he a healthy person in general? Was he always he not at all as a, throughout his life? Frank, he is a pale, sickly sort of fellow. He had... The reason, most likely reason that he never had a there never had children. That's why we know someone is a great, 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 great niece of Polk, not a great, 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 great granddaughter. That is true. That is true. Was, he might have had, I think, he had kidney stones, and the only way to remove kidney stones in the 1820s was to slice open what we now call the taint, and go through uh, that area of the body to remove it's them. Not a and, medical podcast. I don't even know this. <laughs> Uh, it was a me it is a medical podcast, doctor to know. <laughs> I know you're I know you're gonna tell us that uh, kidney stones are a social construct, but does anyone find it ironic that Polk married a woman named Sarah Childress and then they had no children? Oh. That's sad. Oh. I find that appropriate actually, since it's very close to childless. <laughs> This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Baikowski, 
Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Jouet, Paul Moulton, Sylvia Mann, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's historians, Chelsea Deneau and James McRae. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. DB Comedy logo designed by Adam L. Harlett. The Electables logo and presidential caricatures by Dan Polito. The Electables concept created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy and Twitter at DB Comedy Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like.